Welcome to the Art Song Podcast. My name is Daniela Theresia and I'm a mezzo-soprano and I'm joined by my friend and pianist Suzanne Yeo for the first episode of our Eternal Feminine series. This set of podcasts was inspired by my concert series called The Eternal Feminine, which expresses the feminine perspective through women's words and music. In the past, we've explored themes like love, relationships, motherhood, loss, and one's purpose in life. We've done this by performing pieces either based on female characters or pieces with a female composer or poet. For the Eternal Feminine podcast series, we've decided to focus on female composers and poets in order to bring these women into a modern context. Some of these women are not very well known and we wanted to recognize them for their works, as well as bringing the art song genre to a larger audience. Today, we'll be discussing the piece High Luli by Pauline Viardot, And today's an extra special episode, not just because it's our debut, but because today, July 18th, also happens to be Viardot's birthday. Now, we chose to begin the series by featuring Pauline Viardot because she is one of those people who seemed to know pretty much everyone who was anyone in the musical world during her lifetime. And and we thought she would serve as a nice connecting thread between a number of composers whom we will be featuring later in this series because she met Fanny Mendelssohn at one point, and, and, and she was also a good friend of Clara Schumann. Mm-hmm. And if we take it even further, um, Viardot was also the friend of a famous Irish pianist named George Alexander Osborne, who, as it happens, was the uncle of Régine Wieniawski, whom we'll be featuring later on in the series. Now, Pauline Viardot was born in Paris in 1821 and died there in 1910. She came from a very famous musical family. Um, her father was the famous opera singer and voice teacher Manuel Garcia, and her mother, Joaquina Stiches, was also an opera singer and teacher. And then her siblings were also musical. Um, her older brother became a respected voice teacher, and her older sister was the legendary diva Maria Malibran. But young Pauline started out wanting to be a pianist. Um, when she was a teenager, she studied with Liszt. And, you know, pretty much like everyone else at the time, she had a huge crush on him. Uh, But apparently she was quite an excellent pianist. She actually made her concert debut accompanying the well-known violinist Charles de Berriot, who was her sister Maria's husband. Now, unfortunately, her sister met an untimely death in 1836 after a riding accident. And basically her mother decreed that Pauline needed to go into the family business and become a singer. And I really love that the family business was singing. No, don't often hear that. Um, And then the rest is history. Pauline became a celebrated diva and a European icon. And while her sister Maria had been admired for her physical beauty as well as her voice, Pauline had a great um, magnetism and was admired both for the beauty of her voice, um, but also for the dramatic intensity and the expression that she would infuse into her singing. Yeah, I I mean, you know, when I was reading these accounts of her performances, I, I sort of kept thinking of 
you know, Kalas, uh, because she, she sounds like she was a singer in this sort of singing actress vein, you know, incredibly tuned into the dramatic content, almost sort of acting with her voice, you know, not definitely not the sort of park and bark kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, she certainly sounds like a gripping performer. And it also seems like, you know, like Callas, part of what led to the end of her singing career was her desire to sing music that she liked, whether or not it was suited to her voice. Um, but she was also an extremely charismatic person. She inspired a lot of composers, you know, a number of whom had a thing for her and or may, you know, may have been involved with her. And this list of admirers includes Liszt and Berlioz, Gounod and Saint-Saëns. You know, later on in the Eternal Feminine series, we'll be talking about Alma Mahler-Werfel and her many famous husbands and lovers. And it seems like Pauline Viardot had a similar charisma. Um, but unlike Alma, who was predominantly a socialite, Pauline also juggled a performing career, um, composition, and raising four kids to boot. I mean, it did help that Louis Viardot, whom she married and who became her manager, was also very supportive of her career. Incidentally, it was a friend... Georges Saint, who pushed her in Viardot's direction, um, precisely because she thought he would be a better match for her, given her choice of career. Um, at the time, the poet Alfred de Musset had proposed to her, um, but he was known for being, um, well, let us say, quite a character, and 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 probably wouldn't have been quite so supportive. But enough gossip. <laughs> <laughs> So Pauline wasn't just a great singer, she was also a very talented composer, and she was well thought of by many famous composers of the time. Um, she wrote a great deal of music in a variety of genres. In addition to setting some of Ivan Turgenev's libretti to operas, she also wrote some of her own um, libretti for her operas, and she wrote uh, choral music and instrumental music, as well as over a hundred songs. Our featured song today, Hailuli, is from a set called Six Melodies et une Havanaise, um, so six melodies and one Havanaise, which was first published in 1880. But maybe let's talk about the title first, and maybe you could expand on that a bit, Suzanne. Sure, yeah. I, you know, I, I think I should begin with the title, which, which might mm -hmm. seem a bit cryptic, um, because, you know, what is Hailuli? It doesn't actually have a meaning in itself. It's it's kind of like, you know, tra-la-la, or if we're going to find, a, you know, in a modern song, that would be kind of like sha-na-na-na-na. It's, it, it, it's <laughs> <the> kind of... <laughs> you know, it's, it's, it's basically a set of syllables that, that brings the refrain or the chorus back in. Um, except that here, of course, it's it's not a cheerful refrain. It's a sad... It's, it, it's a sad one because the song is basically about young woman who's worrying about her boyfriend not showing up for what seems to be their usual appointment. So the first verse has her talking about feeling sad and anxious because she's waiting for her boyfriend and thinking about how miserable it is to not be with him. In the second verse, she sits down to do some spinning, maybe to try and distract herself, um, but the thread breaks in her hand and, and she decides to stop for now because as she says, she's in too much pain. And we don't really know for sure did the thread break because she's preoccupied with the question of where the boyfriend is, so she's not really paying attention to that. Or is it a bad omen? She certainly seems to take it as a bad omen because in the next verse, she goes straight to the worst case scenario where she's thinking of what she's going to do if he does end up dumping her. 
Mm-hmm. And, you know, spoiler alert, she says she's going to burn down the whole village, uh, including herself. <laughs> <laughs> I know. I mean, you know, when I first read the text, I was like, well, that escalated quickly. Um, but but then, you know, of course, she does calm, calm down a bit. And the song ends melancholically rather than frenziedly with her lamenting that life isn't worth living without her lover. Um, I, I, I should say that this sudden change of tone um, may also have to do with Viado omitting three verses of the original poem by Xavier de Mestre. Um, she just uses the first two verses and the last one. So there's three verses where the narrator talks about how she follows the boyfriend around everywhere, like a cow following its mother and like a shepherd following his sheep, etc, etc. And also somehow manages to end up at his place when she's getting water at the fountain in the morning. Uh, Plus another verse where she starts thinking that maybe he hasn't shown up because he's cheating on her with another woman. so, you know, I mean, th- there's maybe a bit more of a context in that sense. Um, she, you know, she's probably very young, very inexperienced, being a bit, you know, dramatic in that sort of first love teen drama kind of way where, you know, every little setback is like the end of the world. Um, I, I mean, it's also possible, I guess, that, that she might be just a wee bit stalkery, which would c- it also explain the whole overreaction of the fantasized self-immolation, you know, along with the whole village. <laughs> <laughs> Yes, um, but I, I think in, you know, the context of the 19th century, it's probably more the, you know, the lovesick teen than a kind of fatal attraction scenario. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I would tend to think so as well. I, I mean, obviously in real life, the text would definitely be a bit, you know, um, I believe the term these days is stage five clinger. Um, <laughs> but, but, but I mean, given the music and, and, and the tropes of the times, uh, it, it does make more sense as a sort of angsty teenage freak out. I mean, it might not even be completely serious, you know, in, in, in that, you know, it could be one of those things where people talk the way they think they're supposed to. So, so this is the kind of dramatic exclamation you might see in the theater or read in a novel. Um, sort of like how nowadays, you know, people might take on the mannerisms of a TV character or something. And the music does kind of make the argument for the more innocuous interpretation. Uh, it's very elegant, very lyrical, and it's also very well constructed in terms of how the moods shift in each verse. It, it's trophic, so, you know, essentially for the most part, the music is quite similar, but something is different each time. And in the first verse, what we're seeing is disquiet, as she's only just starting to get a bit worried. So the accompaniment is more lilting, whereas in the second verse, the accompaniment starts to move more, which reflects her increasing agitation. Later, when her thread breaks off as she's spinning, um, so too does the lyrical vocal line, which breaks off briefly as she says in quasi-spoken rhythms, that she'll stop spinning for the day and continue tomorrow. Um, in the third verse, the mood shifts completely because instead of this flowy, arpeggiated accompaniment in the piano, we have this menacing, growly thing in the lower register as she vocalizes her threat to, you know, basically burn the world down. But then the emotion kind of peaks at that point. So when the refrain comes back, it's much calmer and sadder, um, you know, more muted melancholy rather than impulsive anger. Mm -hmm. And I guess we should mention that um, some people end the piece in a major key, which which seems kind of counterintuitive to everything that's happened. Like she would end in the minor melancholy key because, you know, what good is the world without her lover? So 
I'm not really sure where where the discrepancy in the in the modulation happened. Maybe it's just a typo that someone hasn't caught. But <laughs> you know, we we talked a lot about this. Actually, we we were we were sort of discussing this. And and you know, if you look on YouTube or whatever, um, half the recordings basically end in the major key, and half the recordings end in the minor key. Um, this has to do with a dis. Well, it's not a discrepancy. All the scores so far that I have seen uh, don't switch it back to the minor key at the end. Um, but it, it intuitively, like you said, it, it doesn't make a lot of sense. Um, the figuration, the scale coming down makes more sense uh, with that sort of melodic minor scale coming down. Um, you know, it, it, because it's not a Tias de Picardie, it's, it's, it's a whole line. We've never heard it in the major before. It just, at least to me, it, it doesn't sound right. Um, I think what, I mean, my suspicion is that, you know, every time this, this passage has come back, it's right before another verse. And so there's always, um, you know, a key signature change marked. But because this is right at the end and there's no more singing coming up, um, it, it seems plausible to me that that um, you know that omission is because well there's no more verse coming, so so we chose to do the minor key. And the version that you'll hear now um, is a recording that Suzanne and I have recorded remotely in July 2020. So. Um, what that means is after discussing our ideas for tempi and mood, um, we each recorded our parts separately and then we edited them into one master track. Thanks to Daniela and her husband Dave, the audio guy for this project. <laughs> <laughs> um, this is a, a very big learning curve for me. Um, and I guess that like pop and rock musicians are used to recording pieces this way, but it's a totally new experience for us. So, you know, we hope that one day we'll have the opportunity to perform it live for you, or at least that Suzanne and I will be able to perform it in the same room as each other. Um, but in the meantime, please enjoy our isolated recording rendition of Hai Luli by Pauline Viardot.
I think that Hailuli is a wonderful example of Viardot's lyrical talent, and I'd like to thank Suzanne for bringing this piece to my attention. If you'd like to learn more about Pauline Viardot, please visit our website, artsong-podcast.com, and there's a dedicated page to Viardot under Episodes. Well, that wraps up the first episode of our Eternal Feminine series here on the Art Song Podcast. I'm Daniela Theresia, and I've been speaking with Suzanne Yeo about Pauline Viardot. So thank you, Suzanne. Oh, my pleasure. And thank you for listening. We will have a new episode every Saturday, so if you enjoyed the Art Song Podcast, please remember to subscribe and to share with others. So, so sweet evening.